Hello and welcome to this month's July 2023's Primary Survey podcast with me, Sarah Edwards. And with me, Rick Boddy. And again, this week and this month's journal is full of a variety of different types of paper, everything from pre-hospital care, pain, and just um, a, one or two papers to get you thinking about some other things in emergency medicine. So to start us off, we're going to get Rick to talk about some pre-hospital heart scoring of patients. Rick. Yes, we've got my favourite topic, which is great. And that's acute coronary syndromes. And it's even more my favourite topic because we're talking about troponin and even more favourite because we're talking about pre-hospital troponin testing, which is an area of interest for me. We've just published the Presto study in Annals of Emergency Medicine. Sorry, rival journal, I know. But we've got a great paper in the Emergency Medicine Journal this month, and it comes from Jamie Cooper and his team in Scotland. They ran a brilliant study called the ACCESS study, where they recruited a huge number of patients in the pre-hospital environment who had suspected cardiac chest pain. In fact, over four years, they got over a thousand patients in this study. So all of them were recruited in the ambulance. Uh, They had data collected for risk scores like the heart score and the paramedics drew blood and they ran uh, those samples with a point of care test. And that's previously been reported in Annals of Emergency Medicine. (laughs) Shouldn't be advertising for competitors. But they've also run those samples with a better troponin assay. So that point of care troponin assay that they used and reported in the other journal uh, wasn't a very good troponin assay. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's just it wasn't very precise or sensitive when you compare it to the current uh, lab assays that we use right now. So in this study, what they did is they used the samples that they, they took from the patients in the ambulance. They stored them in a freezer and then they retrieved them and ran them with two extra troponin assays. So there, there was the Siemens Ultra which is not high sensitivity, but it's a good lab troponin assay. And then there's the Abbott Architect, which is a high sensitivity troponin assay. Now, you wouldn't be able to do this in practice, you know, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't run, a, run a lab assay in an ambulance, obviously. But now that we're getting high sensitivity point of care troponin tests, this is starting to become relevant. So it's starting to show us the art of the possible if we could do high sensitivity troponin tests in the back of an ambulance. So what Jamie and the team have done is in those 1,000 patients, well, in fact, there were 960 who had enough data for analysis, they analysed the accuracy of the heart score, which we all know, used with these two lab troponin assays to see how good they were at diagnosing an MI or predicting whether the patient's going to have a major adverse cardiac event in the next 30 days, and that means death, MI, or a revascularization procedure. So the bottom line here is that the heart score didn't have fantastic sensitivity or negative predictive value, even with those two lab assays. I was quite surprised by this. So if your heart score was three or less, about 29% of patients fell into that group, and they're the people who could potentially be left at the scene uh, and avoid transport to hospital. But the negative predictive value was only 93.5% with the contemporary troponin assay. And the negative predictive value was um, around the same level. It was 92.9%, in fact. Using the high sensitivity assay, you might think it gets better, but it didn't. The sensitivity is only 90.6%. Negative predictive value is 91.4%. Now, if they modified the heart score, so they said, you're only ruled out if you've got a high sensitivity troponin below the limit of detection of the assay. Then things got a little bit better. Sensitivity went up to 96.9%. Negative predictive value to 95.9%. 
But even then, it's not that good for ruling out. You've still got a 4.1% chance of a missed MI if you've got a low heart score and an undetectable high sensitivity troponin test. So it's not brilliant for saying that we could leave people at the scene from this study. Next question they had was, well, could you say who's definitely got an MI? You know, if we use the heart score in one of these assays, maybe we could be more confident that the patient's got an MI and take them to the heart attack center, the cath lab, and avoid going to a local center. And the answer was it wasn't that good for that either. So in fact, if you use the heart score, the positive predictive value of the heart score with high sensitivity troponin was 53.1% with the high sensitivity assay. Whereas if you used just the troponin by itself, the positive predictive value was 84% with high sensitivity troponin, 91% with a normal troponin assay. So just using troponin by itself seems to be better than the heart score for ruling in. And unfortunately, we couldn't rule out a major adverse cardiac event using the heart score, even with a high sensitivity assay. So in comparison to the other study that's published, where does that sit now? So the other study from Jamie in the group showed a very similar sensitivity for the heart score. In fact, it was lower. The sensitivity was 87% in the original access study. So you get a bit higher when you do a lab troponin assay than you did with the original study, but still not getting you up to rule out levels. Now in Presto, we found, I think it was 86 point something percent sensitivity for the heart score when we used uh, the Roche point of care troponin assay, uh, which again suggests you probably can't rule out Maybe we could use it to risk stratify patients and say, you know, you're lower risk, so you go to an urgent care centre maybe, uh, and we sort of risk stratify that way. So it might not be the end of the game, uh, but really didn't suggest it worked. TMAX in the Presto study had a pretty good sensitivity, by the way, 98%. And when you use a high sensitivity point of care troponin, I say things might change a little bit. So it's not the end for pre-hospital troponin testing. It's just not great news for using it with the heart score and these assays. Great. That's really interesting and somewhat disappointing almost because it would be lovely considering how common chest pain uh, presents in the community and then to the emergency department if we could rule out some of it. But clearly more work is needed and maybe a different scoring system is needed to go with it. Yeah, that's right. Plenty of work still to do and still got plenty of potential in this area, but we need a little bit more time before it goes mainstream. Yeah. So the next paper that we've looked at, Sarah, you've looked at a paper on self-harm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, we forget perhaps that self-harm is one of the most common presentations that we get to the emergency department in the UK and probably to lots of parts of the world. And this uh, research letter is discussing and starting to understand and unpick the perceptions of those pre-hospital providers around self-harm. And this was done um, with the Yorkshire Ambulance Service. And the title of the paper is Understanding Pre-Hospital Care for Self-Harm, Views and Experiences of Yorkshire Ambulance Service Clinicians. And it was very much a pilot study. And it looks as though they're going on to do a little bit of work. So they had 26 clinicians that responded to a questionnaire that was put out via social media and, and the local email system. And a Mostly two-thirds were female and one-third were male. Uh, most were paramedics and um, everyone had a cross-section of experience from being in the ambulance service. 
they were looking at things such as had people had specific mental health training and most, so about two thirds, hadn't um, with the average number of calls that people were going to a in the two-week period around when this questionnaire was done was about two calls. Um, most people didn't have a huge amount of confidence in assessing and managing patients who have self-harmed and most felt that they had not been trained very adequately. What they were able to do, because the data was rich, um, full of qualitative data, was that they were able to do a thematic analysis of the free text questions. Um, and some of the key themes that came out were probably not unsurprising um, and, re and really nice to sort of pick up on. So when looking at facilitators to good clinical care for people who have self-harms, um, Previous experience on wound care really helped people. So, you know, lots of people had had previous experience on managing wounds and things like that. Um, so that really helped with the physical aspect of it. But when talking around sort of mental health training and things like that, which which we've already mentioned, um, lots of people didn't feel very confident. Um, one quotation was, due to a lack of formal training in mental health first aid, I have found experience has been the main thing that has helped me when dealing with self-harm patients. Unfortunately, now with less experienced staff in the service, this will be lost. So formal mental health training becomes ever more important. They looked at barriers to good clinical care for people who have self-harmed, so lack of mental health pathways and services, mental health education and training, and sometimes, you know, patient factors. Suggestions such as, you know, training needed, increased availability of, you know, out-of-hours mental health services and wound care services to stop dr driving people um, into the emergency department. And, you know, lots of suggested alternatives to the emergency department for self-care and and things like that. Uh, what this survey is really useful for, and I think it's very honest, it's probably what a lot of us feel and already, you know, think about, you know, we want to make our, our management of patients who self-harm better. Um, but this can be challenging for lots of reasons. And I think what this, this research letter really touches upon nicely is some of the, the challenges that, that we feel and some of the barriers that are currently out there. A really important piece. I, I was um, struck by the theme that came out about the lack of alternatives to transport to the emergency department. Uh, it seems like there's great potential here to avoid unnecessary transport to the ED because a lot of the wounds are relatively superficial and they, they just need good basic wound care and so they could be dealt with outside of an emergency department with better training in wound care and alternatives to um to the ed for accessing mental health support like you said i think that was uh, that seems to be a real source of frustration for the paramedics that we don't have those alternatives so real target for future service development i'd really like to see a piece following on from this why they do something similar but with patients and get their perspective on the care that they received when they presented with self-harm, I think that would be a really important piece to try and uh, design how the services need to be structured in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that would be a phenomenal piece of work because so little about the patient voice and the patient experience is, is, is known. 
So, Rick, you're going to talk about IV paracetamol and other analgesias for pain relief in the emergency department. Yeah, it's a real privilege to be uh, leading on this paper because it went a bit viral on Twitter. Uh, some great engagement with your tweet, Sarah, on behalf of the EMJ, uh, looking at this trial of, well, it's a systematic review and meta-analysis of trials that evaluated intravenous paracetamol in comparison to non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, or opioids for patients presenting with moderate to severe painful conditions in the ED. So it's a really important question to ask. We use loads of opioids in the emergency department, and we all know that they've got lots of adverse effects. They're addictive, um, and uh, we've got alternatives that might be a bit better in that regard. We like paracetamol and NSAIDs. Intravenous paracetamol is very commonly used in my ED, but how good is it when we compare it to opioids? There's a kind of branding and marketing issue, I think. You know, we've got the, the, the pain ladder that we always think about when paracetamol is kind of at the bottom. And I think that rubs off on our patients. So when you say, you know, you give patients uh, some medication for their pain, they say, what is it? It's paracetamol. There's almost a look of disappointment on their face instantly. <laughs> you think my pain is only worth paracetamol? Come on. I mean, I think it's at least worth oral morphine. <laughs> so is that evidence-based? Could we actually do better? So a uh, group led by Isma Qureshi, the first author, and for the UK audience, you might remember Tim Harris from the Royal London, uh, now working um, with the team uh, overseas, I believe. And they've led a systematic review, which has identified 27 trials with over 5,000 participants for inclusion in the systematic review. And these trials either compared intravenous paracetamol to NSAIDs, or they compared intravenous paracetamol to opioid analgesia. And they looked at the primary outcome of analgesia 30 minutes after, you know, had the pain score of 30 minutes after the, uh, this, these products have been given. And then they had secondary outcomes to look at pain scores a little bit later as well. There were quite a, a few trials on this, actually. Uh, and they did split it by different conditions. They had all sorts of different uh, conditions like headache, like a renal colic, for example. The bottom line here was quite interesting. Paracetamol was no better than opioids for uh, reducing pain in these painful conditions. So if we look at the mean difference in uh, pain score between intravenous paracetamol and opioids, it was minus 0.13, and the confidence intervals went from minus 1.49 to 1.22. So they cross zero, which means it's not statistically significant. And there was no significant difference between IV paracetamol and NSAIDs either. So mean difference was minus 0.27. Confidence intervals that clearly crossed one. Uh, there was no difference at 60 minutes either. So when you compare the need for rescue analgesia between the groups, more people who got intravenous paracetamol needed rescue analgesia than the people in the NSAID groups. So interesting, suggesting NSAIDs were better slightly. No difference in the opioid groups. You might have thought, you know what, in these trials, if, if it may be that uh, there's no difference overall at 30 minutes, but that's because loads of people in the paracetamol group knew that it hadn't made any difference and they asked for morphine. And that's why we see no difference. There's no difference in the rate of rescue analgesia that's given. So it's not that. And then we look at adverse events as well. So we, we know that opioids cause lots of adverse events and there were significantly more adverse events with opioids than there were with in vitro venous paracetamol, 50% lower 
it's a relative risk of 0.5 in the opioid group. So pretty convincing evidence that opioids led to no benefit when compared to IV paracetamol and that they cause more adverse, adverse events. And you might say, yeah, but that could have been for people with milder conditions and things. You know, I know people with renal colic who it's been agonizing worse in childbirth. Uh, well, when they split it by condition, no effects either. A lot of trials looked at renal colic and there's no difference in that either. So give me an argument for opioids, Sarah. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. Not sure I can. And um, I think our Twitter feed reflected you know people surprised and angst and and worry about some of these these thoughts that we've just discussed the interesting thing that i think we were both discussing before we came on air was that we didn't realize that iv paracetamol was a thing either um, which is not something commonly we see in the uk i think pain acute pain in the emergency department is more complex than we think it is and i think we underestimate the you know stacking that ladder from the base up so starting with those that paracetamol adding in those nzs and then plus or minus you know weak or stronger opioids i think there's more work that needs to be done about this yeah and you know in practice the, the problem is, one of the problems we might have is that this was, I mean, largely these trials were double blinded. I think there was one that used acupuncture, so it wasn't blinded. Interestingly, acupuncture did very well <laughs> in that trial. But uh, in general, they were blinded. Now, if you weren't blinded and you were a patient and you were told you were getting IV paracetamol, does the fact that we've kind of associated a label, you know, paracetamol as being a weaker analgesic mean that we lose that placebo effect and the analgesic effect might be lower? And also there's the oral versus intravenous paracetamol. I know anecdotally, I've got no evidence and I'm not sure if the literature exists, but if I tell patients I'm going to give them intravenous paracetamol over oral paracetamol, there is a perception that the intravenous stuff is better. I don't know. Well, perhaps that's a really important part of our role is explaining that, you know, we're going to give you something really powerful here. It's paracetamol given through a drip intravenously. And we know from research that it's really powerful. Perhaps that's part of our job to make sure that, you know, to add that placebo effect in. If it gets rid of your pain, it doesn't matter if it's placebo or if it's pharmacology. The point is to get people comfortable and to look after their well-being when we're talking about analgesia. Yeah, absolutely. And this segues nice into this next paper uh, that I've been looking at from Australia um, is the management of low back pain in Australian emergency departments for culturally and linguistically diverse populations from 2016 to 2021. So this was a large retrospective study done across three public hospitals in Sydney and New South Wales over that period of time. And what they wanted to understand was if you were from a culturally and linguistically diverse population, what was your experience and how was your back pain managed in comparison to those who were not? So um, of those uh, of just over 14 and a half thousand um, patients who presented, um, around just over half were born overseas with around a quarter of those preferring not to communicate in the English language. And about 10 percent, just less than 10 percent needed an interpreter. So this large study was quite interesting and it would be interesting to see what the UK um, outcome of this would be. But patients who were born overseas were less likely to arrive by ambulance than those who were born in Australia. 
patients who preferred a non-English language were also less likely to uh, arrive by ambulance, yet were more likely, interestingly, to be imaged. An imaging could be, um, you know, a simple x-ray or all the way up to an MRI. Patients who required an interpreter were more likely to also receive imaging as well or be admitted compared to those who communicated independently. When looking at sort of analgesia, which they did, uh, patients from a culturally and linguistically diverse population, so a called patients, as they, they use the term here, were generally less likely to receive weak opiates than non called patients, yet there was no different at the strong evidence, strong opioid level. So the bottom line really is there is a population where English isn't their first language, who are not native to Australia, who present to the emergency department with low back pain, who are more likely to be imaged and more likely to be admitted, and how their pain is managed is slightly, potentially slightly different to those who are native English speakers of Australia. I found this quite interesting and not surprising in a way. And I just wonder, unfortunately, this paper doesn't tease out why that might be, but I wonder why that might be happening. And one of the thoughts I have is maybe the needing the interpreter and the need not having English as a native language, you're more likely to get admitted because you may need more time to unpick what is going on. Rick, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's, I don't know necessarily that we can unpick this and explain mm. it just from the findings. Um, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, you know, because these, the patients were more likely to walk in and less likely to arrive by ambulance. And the implication from that, the, the inference would be that, well, perhaps they have less severe problems, but on the other hand, they're more likely to get imaged. Um, and maybe that's because the clinicians are just not confident because of the language barrier, for example. So they're more likely to be cautious and go for the imaging. This is an example of a study that would really benefit from some qualitative work to try and explain the findings off the back of it. I'm advocating for, for loads of qualitative work today. I've done it before on, on your first paper, Sarah, and I'm doing it again now. And I think that, but I think that really interviewing the patients and the clinicians to try and explain these findings, present them to them and try and work out what might be driving it would be really important. One thing that I would say to that is maybe people presenting but are self-presenting because actually they don't know how to access or can't speak over the phone to call an ambulance. Yeah, very good point. Exactly. And those are the sort of things that you could pick up in interviews with the patients to ask them, Can you know, just say this is something we found. Um, could you talk me through your thought process when you were accessing care? Yeah. So finally, I'm just going to talk um, briefly about a concepts paper for this month's journal, and it's called Engaging, Empowering and Educating the Waiting Patient. And the lead author is Amjid Mohammed. And this paper really is talking about how you can use that um, dead time in the waiting room while patients are waiting to see, uh, be seen. Um, so how can we um, va how can value be added to the patient care? So there are three things that this paper talks about, and it's a, it's a nice, really short paper to read and really gets you thinking about how you could use your emergency department's waiting area and that time to improve patient care. So when patients are finally seen, 
which we know not only in the UK, but there can be a significantly long wait to be seen now at the moment by a clinician. What can you do to empower your patients and get the best for them? So one of them is thinking about how to engage the waiting patient. So thinking about, well, what can you do with the patient while they're sat there? So one of the things is, is that when you come through an emergency department is, um, you know, waiting times can be a long time. Um, But people don't mind waiting a long time if they understand the purpose for why they're waiting a long time. So we've got a period of time where people are sat there and um, they could be there for 12 hours, but the value in that 12 hours is perceived positively if they understand why they're waiting, if the outcome is generally positive. So engaging the waiting patient could include things like public health care announcements in the waiting room, literature things like that and lots of places do that already i know in my emergency department and i know in yours as well there's lots of posters around about a variety of different things and it's a balance of not trying to entertain the patient but using that time where they might pick up you know other information about other services potentially about you know maybe domestic abuses uh, you know and um intimate partner violence is, is a common one that we see particularly in toilets leaflets about managing simple ailments ways to access different services so you know that could be one way to sort of engage the waiting patient empowering the waiting patient because if you sat there for a long time the last thing that you want to happen is that the patient comes to see the clinician they're dismissed within five ten minutes for what for them might be the worst day of their life and the worst thing that they're presenting with so when you go through the emergency department lots of information is collected for you and obviously you know it's important that we understand the patient's version of the story is the truth and how we interpret it and how people interpret it along the way changes so you know you present to the receptionist um who takes ask briefly why you're here you then you know speak to maybe a, a nurse at the or a clinician at the desk so that can you know stream you to either minors majors that sort of thing and then you get formally triaged so the story unfolds and the story carries on and one of the things that they suggest is actually well an option could be while people are sat there if you can develop a sort of online questionnaire or something to add that extra information through a QR code that could be added into the hospital notes so you've got extra information you know to unpick and make it a little bit easier for that clinician the counter argument to that is what you don't want is just lots of information collected that isn't very useful And finally, it's about educating the waiting patient. So we've touched upon them. So some of it is engaging the patient at the beginning. And then it's sort of using that engagement time to educate the patients with like public health care measures, bespoke information about that department, that area, how services work. There's lots of things to use that downtime that those patients have got waiting. And I think as digital healthcare grows and electronic health records move from paper-based into electronic systems, there is more scope for a lot of this information, a lot of stuff to get added in. And it's thinking about how we do that in a meaningful way that empowers our patients, engages our patients, but doesn't become so onerous that we end up with so much data that we can't do anything with it. So this is an issue that's quite close to my heart again, actually. Uh, I've been supervising a PhD looking at whether we could uh, use routinely collected data, for example, to try and um, identify patients who might have 
ongoing health risks for cardiovascular disease after they leave the emergency department. And we interviewed lots of emergency physicians and looked at, talked about the barriers to, you know, to doing this sort of stuff and communicating the risks and getting people to act on it. When you present to the emergency department, if you're found to be at high risk of something, this is a real teachable moment because people are focusing on their health. So I really liked this article because it, it focuses on, you know, a period of time that we just don't use optimally at the moment in the emergency department when people are waiting to be seen. And potentially that's a long time, like you say. So there's so much that we could do. We could be getting details about what they've presented with, details about their past history. Like you say, look at addressing uh, um, ways that they could stay healthier in the future. There's so much potential. I really like the fact that they included a bit on digital, digital exclusion as well. Because any solution that we develop in this regard that might involve a patient using their, their own device... Well, we've got to think about those people who don't have a device that they could use and how we make sure that they're still included and they still get the same quality of care. So that's a really important consideration. But as more and more people have access to smartphones and other devices that we could use in the waiting area, there's better Wi-Fi. This is something that I think we really need to start focusing on, using that dead time to add value to the patient's journey, both for their emergency department journey and helping us to treat them better, but also in an ongoing way um, to help them to stay healthy in the longer term as well. Really important stuff. Absolutely. And I think there is so much potential and we just need to explore it. And actually, a lot of the challenges I will see is that integration into our IT system. Absolutely. So five great papers uh, this month. Absolutely. Really fascinating range of topics. Great stuff. Thank you, Sarah, for setting that up. Yeah, no worries. And um, we shall leave it there. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Until next month. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.